I want to invite you to turn in God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm so grateful um, for you, the church. Um, yesterday was a day that you demonstrated the love of Christ um, to one that you have poured into for so many years. Um, John L., we went by Nell Hampton. Um, as many of you know, last week I shared about um, that he had been murdered in one of the, the interstate, or right beside the interstate shootings, um, along with the, the Uber driver. And so just, you know, we, we're aware of these events going on in our city, but it's also a time for us to minister the gospel. And I'm so thankful for the, the legacy of those that have come before me on staff here at this church. In fact, we have some, Andrew and Allie Crosby and their kids that are here today, that came back and, and led um, Nell's family and friends and the other probably 250 people that gathered in this room um, to mourn his loss. Um, he and Taylor Rutland and his wife Ashley came back and helped to lead that time proclaiming so clearly the gospel. Um, and so I'm so thankful for the, the legacy of this church of just faithful gospel ministry in our city, going to the difficult places. And so we're not going to stop. We're, we're not going to stop going to the, to the hard places of ministering to these precious gifts of children and teenagers in our city. And they continue to do so in a, in a way that's bold compassion, but it's also bold proclamation where we're proclaiming the gospel. I'm thankful for you that stayed and then helped to feed everyone. Um, you demonstrated the love of Christ for those that were mourning. Um, God's word calls us in Romans to mourn with those who mourn, and you did just that. So thank you, First Baptist. You are an incredible church of love and you honor Christ in those actions. We continue this morning in a time of looking and preparing our hearts for that moment that we will gather on Good Friday to remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The cross prominent even here on the stage today, a, a reminder that really a calendar helps us to recall and never lose sight of. Um, this time we talked about how one season leads to the next, especially here in New Orleans, where we really embrace some of those, those um, religious calendar aspects. Uh, we may have forgotten what it was all about and got a little distracted with Mardi Gras, but it was really about Ash Wednesday, remember, of, of then leading into a season of Lent that is this 40-day period of leading up to the cross um, and then the, the resurrection. And so right now as a church, we're looking and, and just pondering the question, and how does the Bible answer the question of why the cross? Why the cross? Uh, of, of all the ways that God could have ordained and ordered and sovereignly been in control of to save us from our sin. Why the cross? Well, why the cross? And we, we've been looking at different passages. We looked the first week at Ephesians chapter 2, that, that the reason for the cross is because of our sin, because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We, we needed someone to enter into our death to bring us into life, and that's exactly what Jesus did. And then last week, Pastor Corey Barnes preached powerfully from God's Word in Genesis 22 that even back in the Old Testament, we see this, this foreshadowing, this proclamation of what would one day happen in Christ um, who would not be a ram caught in the thicket, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we looked at that and we're reminded of that. And so today we turn in God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. And we're really going to be looking at two primary verses today, verses 13 and 14. But it's important anytime we turn to God's Word to kind of know where are we picking up, what's going on in God's Word. And so I encourage you always look at the context of what you're reading. And so to kind of bring you up to speed of where we are 
Paul, just like the, the letter of Ephesians, is writing to a church to encourage them in the faith. He's anchoring them. He's reminding them. Um, there's uh, these incredible um, vistas of, of God's glory in Christ Jesus. Um, he's lifting up high the name of Jesus in chapter 1, the, these beautiful passages that we read um, talking about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So he's making clear the, 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 the preeminence of Christ, the, 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 the glory of Christ, but he's saying that all of that glory was fully revealed the glory of God in Christ on the cross. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself. And then he's moving in. He's kind of uh, explaining his ministry at the end of chapter one, moving into chapter two. And then your Bible might have a little heading like mine does, beginning right over verse three, where it says, Christ versus the Colossian heresy. And, and your Bible might have some kind of a heading like that. And what that's doing, the, the interpreters of the Bible who are translating from original languages, Old Testament, a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament, and Greek, the Bible in the New Testament originally being written in Greek, when they translate, they're also trying to provide easy handles for us to make our way through the Bible. That includes the addition of chapter and verse numbers. Those weren't originally written. Um, that was added to help us quickly get there. Um, and then these section headings are the same thing. They're not in the original text, but they're helpful divisions to help us see big ideas in the Bible. And so we come to this big idea, Christ versus the Colossian heresy. And Paul is dealing with, again, some false teaching that's come into the church it's, it's making the gospel unfruitful because it's distracting the believers from what is true and the freedom that they have in Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that it's extremely dangerous to the fruitfulness of these people, that if they begin to take in little bits of false teaching, then they will become very unfruitful for the sake of the gospel. He says it in verse eight, he says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than on Christ. And then he reemphasizes what he said in chapter one, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you've been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with the circumcision not done by hands, by putting off the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Notice what he's doing. He's contending for the sake of the gospel against these false teachings. Those false teachings including things like, well, if you're really a, 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 a part of the people of God, you have to be circumcised. And we know that this is coming from a, a Jewish influence of imposing the Mosaic law the, the, the sign of the covenant of Abraham on the people. And he's saying, no, you've been circumcised. It's not that you're not circumcised. It's you've been, you've been circumcised by God himself. 
your heart has been changed. And so you truly are the circumcision. Not, Not the circumcision done by human hands on the external body. And so he's emphasizing these things and he's dealing with these things. And then he comes into verses 13 and 14, which is really kind of the, the hinge point of, of, of this whole argument of why all of this is the case. And so I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from verses 13 and 14, acknowledging that this is God who speaks to us as his people. So hear the word of the Lord. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Will you pray with me? God, we rejoice today in the truth of the gospel that forgiveness is ours because of what it was accomplished at the cross. Remind us today, help us to ponder anew this question of why the cross, so that our faith would be more anchored, more solid, more a foundation in our lives, so that we flourish as your people in this city for the sake of all nations. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Why the cross? Why the cross? Well, first of all, If you're taking notes today, we first see why the cross? Because we are guilty of a debt we could not pay. We are guilty of a debt that we could not pay. Notice how Paul deals with this in verse 13, what he's trying to help remind them of, of this condition of all of humanity. I love the IMB and how they say right now that the the greatest problem in the world today is not a lack of education, it's not a lack of health care. It's not a lack of, of good reforms in justice systems and things like that. That's not the greatest need in the world today. The greatest need in the world today is lostness. That's the greatest need, and I couldn't agree more. But if I'm being honest, sometimes it's the problems in our own backyard, like crime. They can seem to be, well, that's the greatest problem in the world today. Or, or an, an, an unstable economy. We need stability, or we need better politics or politicians. We need these things. And you can start to look at these different things, and these things are important, but it's not the greatest need in the world today. The greatest need in the world today, the greatest problem in the world today is lostness, and therefore the greatest need in the world today is the gospel. The greatest need in the world today is for the gospel. The greatest problem is lostness. It's the root cause of everything else that we see. Then the greatest need in the world today is the gospel. And that's what Paul is proclaiming here in clarity in his word. But it starts off with some pretty bad news that we all need to remember, that we all need to be reminded of. In fact, he reminds these, these brand new believers. These are people that have trusted in Christ. They've heard the gospel from Paul himself. They've been discipled by Paul. And he's reminding them, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's just like he writes in Ephesians 1. In fact, a lot of scholars will say that that Ephesians and Colossians were written maybe around the same time, almost in identical ways. There's a lot of quotations from each. And so it seems that Paul is communicating this message in both places. And and that's important for us to know that he starts off in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
You see the consistencies there with what he's saying here in verse 13? And when you were dead in trespasses. You see, this is important for us to remember. That even though we're trying to appropriate the gospel in New Orleans, and we might distinguish New Orleans from West Monroe. We might say, man, New Orleans doesn't have anything in common with anybody else in Louisiana. New Orleans is her own. And there's a truth about that. But, you know, we share some things in common with Lafayette. We we both like a good time. We like good food, all those kind of things. But people south of I-10 say we have nothing in common with people north of I-10. And if we're not careful, we begin to kind of make our state into all of these fractions and all these things. And, And then that leads us to think, well, maybe different parts of the state need a different gospel. Maybe there's like a a whole different gospel message that people in West Monroe need, and that may be true, but, you know, a gospel message up there that's different than a gospel message down here. Notice what Paul does. He's writing to two different people in two different places, and he's saying the same thing. You were lost in your sin. Don't miss it. We're, We're proclaiming a consistent message. The Ephesians are not more dead than the Colossians, and the Colossians are not more dead than the Ephesians. Muslims in Syria are not more dead than cultural Christians in Madison, Mississippi. And cultural Christians in Madison, Mississippi aren't more dead than Muslims in Syria. We've got to be careful that we don't come up with this rank of death. Death is death. Dead is dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, like the reminder in Ephesians 2.11, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. What's his point? He's reminding them that they're being called something that's not true. They're being told you're uncircumcised. And he's saying false. You are circumcised in the truest sense of the word. God himself with his own hands has changed your heart. You have a different heart. It was never about how we appeared to one another. It was always about our standing with God. And so if God has reached in through faith in Jesus and changed your heart, has literally cut out the old heart and put in a new heart, then you are circumcised. You are God's people. And don't let another person who is circumcised by human hands on a human body tell you that you're not. That's his point. He is driving home that there are false accusations being made. There's a false belief that this is what it means to be the people of God. And he's saying it means you're in Christ and Christ has changed your heart. You are circumcised. Paul preached specific application of the gospel in his context. He starts off with the general, every one of us are dead. The greatest problem in the world today is the lostness. But then he contextualizes it because he knows this is a problem here. And this was a problem in the early church pretty consistently was this Jewish teaching coming in that you needed to be circumcised, that there were certain parts of the Old Testament law that you still had to abide by. We see that being on full display in Acts chapter 15 where the church finally has to settle some things. What is it that we're going to ask of new believers? What is the standard? What's the the, the basics here? And you'll notice that what's not on the list of what they said they want to emphasize to the church is circumcision. If anywhere it was to be expected, it would have been in Acts 15, but it's absent. And so it's important for us to remember that as we consider false teaching in our own day. You see, as I've 
labored among the nations, and one of the great advantages of doing international missions, of going to other cultures, is to see what is it about their culture that is at odds with the gospel. And so in doing mission trips to South Africa and the country of Lesotho, partnering with Jonathan Bundrick and Liz Bundrick and doing missions, the same country that you travel with, with the Barnhills, one of the things that the missionaries there have realized is that there's a lot of, of a mixture of different religions together. There's a little bit of Catholicism up in the mountains. There's a little bit of ancestor worship up in the mountains. There's some witchcraft up in the mountains. There's all of these, you know, it's kind of just a, a gumbo of religions up there. And so when you come up there and you say, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, they say, great, add him to the gumbo. Put some Jesus in the pot, we'll take him. But what the missionaries are proclaiming is Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone. The real test of that moment of do I believe that Jesus alone saves is when they're asked to cut off the bracelet that they wear, that the witch doctor gave them, that keeps away the evil spirits at night. So they understand a lot more about God is light and in him is no darkness at all than we do. We just turn on the lights there when it's dark, it's dark. And they fear the dark. And in the dark is where the, the spirits come out and they, they make family members sick and they make children die. They rob, they steal, they kill, they destroy. I mean, look at the demonic that's on description in those places. And they're told by the witch doctor at a price that I'll give you some beads that will ward off the evil spirits and you can wear them. And so when the missionaries say Christ alone saves, and so if you're really committed to following Christ and trusting him alone, we're gonna ask you to do something today in faith and that's to cut off the bracelet. And what they've seen over and over again is a lot of them say, well, never mind. Uh, you know, I don't know about that. Praise God that they had the clarity that they weren't trusting Christ rather than what, Confusion is so many times in our culture, if I put on a necklace that's got a cross on it, then I'm good. I'm good. I've got my cross. And just like those beads, we'll wear a piece of jewelry and think that that keeps away the evil spirits. We'll think that somehow that's our lucky foot with, with the Lord, that it, I've got the cross on, and so therefore I've got my trust there. You see, it's easy to look at other cultures and say, man, how silly. Brothers and sisters, we live in that very culture where we'll trust in little things. We'll, we'll trust in an heirloom left by a family member, a rosary that we've held on to, a cross necklace that we wear because it means that the Lord is with us. Brothers and sisters, I have good news for you. The Lord is with you if you are in Christ and he will never leave you or forsake you. His promise is sure. He has promised that he is with you. And it's not because you wear a necklace remembering, remembering the cross. Instead, he is with you because he has promised and he is faithful and he will do it. He will never forsake you. In his hand, you can never be snatched. All of these reminders of his word reminding us of the truth that Paul is driving here and pulling to and, and helping to remind and to, and to reestablish the church. But it starts off with that bad news. And brothers and sisters, we need that reminder. You see, many times it's the reminder that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that like the rest, we were children of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. We need that reminder because it produces humility. You see, it's when we go along for a while 
and, and life begins to be sanctified and made holy, that sometimes we can forget the depth from which he saved us. Sometimes we can forget that there was nothing, that our righteousness was as filthy rags before him when he saved us. We can forget that I too was dead in my sin and trespasses, but God, but God, but God who is rich in mercy, even when I was dead, made us alive together with Christ. Or as Paul goes on to say in Colossians 2.14, he says, and for, um, in the end of 2.13, and forgave us all our trespasses and made you alive with him. How? How did he do this? How did he do this amazing thing of taking us from death that we talked about two weeks ago out of Ephesians in our death, in our sin, in this state in which we all find ourselves, whether we're of another world religion, whether we would say we have a good moral track record or not, how has he done this? How has he made us alive with Christ and forgiven all our trespasses? Well, the second point that Paul begins to move into in verse 14 is this, to pay our debt in full. How did he do it? He paid our debt in full. This is why the cross. Why the cross? To pay our debt in full. Because number one, we had a debt we could not pay. And so therefore the cross to pay our debt in full. You see, there's a main verb that's found in verse 14 that really is the, the central part of really this entire passage of, of, of verses 4 all the way down through verse 23 that is central to our understanding, and it's this. It's this Greek word that's translated this. He has taken it away. Look at it down at, toward the end of verse 14. It says, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. You see, John the Baptist declared this when he used the exact word when he proclaimed, when he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away, same word, the sin of the world, John 1.29. The apostle John reminds us of this reality, when he uses the same word in 1 John 3, 5, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins. And there is no sin in him. And this is the great irony of the Bible that I think that the writers of the New Testament were fully aware of. Because in John 19, 15, we hear this being proclaimed by a crowd Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. And that word, take him away, is the exact same word used here. And how ironic is it that these people screaming, take him away, take him away, crucify him, were saying that of the one who would be crucified to take away their sin. Same word. The irony of the Bible take him away so that he might take away our sin and our shame. The tense of this verb is also important. It's being found in the perfect tense in this passage. And what that means when you talk about the Greek language is that the action has not only been completed, like kind of a past tense, you know, like it's done, but it has ongoing effect. The biblical writers would use specific tenses of words sometimes to really carry an idea, to get it across, that when he took 
your sin away. He took it away, and that is supposed to have ongoing effect. In other words, Jesus did not take away the sins of the people up to that point of his death on the cross, leaving those afterwards still needing a new way to have their sins taken away. Nor was his death only for those living up to his life and death. So that those, leaving those who believed God's promises of the, of the Messiah to remain in their sin. So either way you, you, you cut it, whether he was, you say, well, he, he died for everybody who lived before him, or he was only dying for those who lived after him, neither is true because of the tense of the verb that communicates so clearly to us today. And when Jesus did this, it's like a nuclear event. It spreads out in every direction to the past and to the future. And the ongoing effect of it is still felt in your life and in mine today and will until the day of Christ. But what about us personally? So that's what it's talking about, that all of the sin, past, present, future of those who believe in him has been removed. But what about when it speaks about me personally? When you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, he removed your guilt, guilt for what you had already done, guilt for what you are maybe part of right now and doing, and guilt for what he knew you would incur later. He removed it all, and it remains removed. The guilt, the guilt is gone. Some of you desperately need that reminder this morning. He has taken away your guilt. He has taken away your guilt. Hear me, hear the word of the Lord. He has taken away your guilt. You have been forgiven. He will never hold your guilt against you again. You are forgiven. You are saved from your sin. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are forgiven. This is the importance of really capturing these ideas and allowing them to really pierce in our hearts is that it changes everything. One of the most powerful events in the life of any parent, and they'll tell you this, is when they've blown it with their children and they humble themselves and they get down on the, on the level of their child and they say, like I've had to say so many times to my own kids, I'm sorry, dad was being impatient and I got short-tempered and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then to see those sweet eyes look into yours and say, I forgive you and wrap you up in love and to know they will never hold that against you again. That childlike forgiveness is one of the most powerful experiences in life. Brothers and sisters, more powerful than that is the love of the Father who is in complete knowledge of all of your failures, every one of them, as if, as the text goes on, as if it were on a ledger, like literally a ledger, a, and a full account of every wrong. You see, the, the text back at the beginning, it includes a couple of participles, and it's communicating something to us about how it's been taken away. How has our guilt been removed? And he says it's been done in two ways. And they're, they're both these, these action verbs, these participles, and they're by erasing it and by nailing it to the cross. That, that's how God has done it. 
We had a debt we could not pay. And so therefore he died to pay it all. And the way he did it was by erasing our debt and nailing it to the cross. It's important for us to see that this certificate of debt is what's used to describe our sin, the record of our sin. In the first century, there was a lot of IOUs going around. People literally, because there wasn't computer programs to keep up with who owed who and to make mortgage payments and payments on other things, at times you'd have to essentially take out a loan. You'd have to say, well, I'll pay you back for that. And so literally you'd have a sheet of paper on which you wrote IOU and then however much. And you kept up with it. It was literally a piece of paper that had all of your debt on it. And so that was your debt. And, and you were held to it at penalty of being arrested, of having your things being taken away, of even going into slavery yourself. And so it was serious business. And that ledger was this thing that you carried around with you as a reminder. In other words, it was something that was often in your pocket, kind of like we keep you know, uh, uh, our credit cards and receipts and things like that in our pocket, you kept it with you. It was something that you carried with you, this ledger of debt, what you owed other people. And what Paul does is he uses this rarely used word. It's the only time we find it in the Greek New Testament to say, this is how God's done this. He's got a ledger of everything that you owe. And what he has done is he has erased it. But I don't know about you, but I wasn't very good at erasing when I was in school. You could always kind of see the faint lines, right? You'd erase, and it's like, I can still see what I wrote there. You know, I can still see, and you try to write hard enough over it, but there's still this faint reminder. But the word that, that Paul uses here could also be translated as destroy or obliterate. And I love the power of those words. That he didn't just erase it, but just leave just enough faint reminder to remind you of what you did. Don't you forget, I want to leave just a little, a little pencil on the paper to remind you of just, just how you messed up. I don't ever want you to forget. You say, well, Chad, I thought that you wanted us to remember that we were dead in our trespasses. Yes. In a generic, encompassing sense, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But to walk around constantly with the shame of what you did when you were younger, of that mistake you made, that that becomes your primary identity that you live in light of the mistake you made rather than the redemption of Jesus Christ, rather than your identity now in him is a mistake. And it's not believing what the word says. He has obliterated the record of your debt. And what has he done with that obliterated record, that erased record? It's still accurate to say erased. Well, how did he erase it? How did he do it? We well, literally took it like this sheet of paper right here. And he walked up to the cross of Jesus Christ and he put it up and he took your, your statement of debt and he nailed it to the cross. And you say, Chad, that's not the, the scene that I had of the cross, pieces of paper with debts on it. No, he made him who had no sin to be sin so that you and I might become the righteous of God. Jesus literally took on all of our debt, being nailed to the cross, paid in full, his body given, his blood shed, so that it is finished and paid for. 
once and for all. Jesus will never be crucified again. He paid it all. You're no longer held guilty for your sin because he paid it all. The cross becomes everything for us. Why are you forgiven? Because he paid it all. Why are you loved? Because he paid it all. Paul is making the point here that he has taken away your guilt. He has taken away your sin, not by just sweeping it under the rug, but nailing it to the cross. Why the cross? Because God is a just God. Why the cross? Because he is a merciful God. Why the cross? Because the consequences of sin is death. Why the cross? Because the gift of God is eternal life for all who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let that be a reminder to you that you are forgiven. The ledger of your guilt, your shame, your debt, paid in full, nailed to the cross. And brothers and sisters, it is gone. It is over. The victory has been won. You are forgiven. And now step into that forgiveness. And how do we do that? How are we called as God's people to step into the forgiveness that is now ours in Christ Jesus? Well, in a way that should come as no surprise, to constantly remind ourselves of what it took for that to happen. You see, that points to this. His body given, represented by the bread, his blood shed, represented by the cup, representing a new covenant, a new promise of God for forgiveness and pardon of sin. And so we, we are a people who are constantly looking to the cross to remind us of the cup and of the bread. Because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. I want to invite you to take the elements that you received when you came in. If you are here as a believer today and you didn't receive one of these, if you'll just lift your hand. We have deacons that have those and they want to get these elements to you so that you can participate in this moment. But I want to speak to you today that if you're here today and you would honestly say, I don't identify as a Christian. I, I, I wouldn't say that, that I'm that I'm a follower of Jesus or, or, or a member of a church or something like that. I just, I'm checking this out. I'm learning. What I want you to do is just to, is just to watch today. Rather than eating this bread and drinking this cup, I just want you to consider what it means. And I want you to consider what it means from God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul, communicating with the church there, says that what was of greatest importance I passed on to you in chapter 15 he talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, back in chapter 11, he said, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we do this in remembrance of him, remembering that his body was given for our sin. His body was given for our forgiveness. That's why he died. It's because our greatest need was the forgiveness of sins. And so the greatest hope we have is the gospel. So take and eat with hearts of gratitude. Scripture goes on. In the same way, he took the cup. And I invite you to open the cup portion after supper and said, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we take and remember that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're here today 
and you're checking this out, you're wanting to learn more, like what does this mean? Know this, this is the core of our faith. What you have just heard proclaimed and what you've just witnessed in this moment is what we are hinging everything about our lives on, is that Christ died for us. We are convinced that the only hope for salvation, to have an eternity with God, is faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that it is only by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast, but only by faith in the grace of God given to us in Christ Jesus that we can be saved. And you say, well, how do you receive it? You receive it as you do any gift without stretched hands. God, I need your forgiveness. God, I need the hope that only you can give. God, please come into my life. And his word says that all who confess their sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. There's not a single person who's ever cried out to the Lord to say, forgive me. That He said, nope, nope, not you. No, I know about your sin. Can't forgive that. Not a single person. Because what he did was for all, all who would believe. And so today, if you're here and you're saying, I believe, I believe, then I want to encourage you to have the courage today to just leave your seat during this moment. I'm going to invite for everyone to stand in this moment. We're going to sing a song of response, all of us celebrating the gospel. But there may be one person here today, one, one who is saying, I want to follow Jesus. I am seeing for the first time he paid my debt in full. I'm forgiven. And you want others to know and to be able to pray with you. I invite you to come and respond to me, to come to Pastor Gary. We want to pray with you. We want to begin a journey of discipleship and a journey of worship together. So you respond in this moment. Church, be praying for that one in this moment that they might respond to God's grace.